Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to this Sandbox Story. It's an interview with Dr. Adam Ramsey. Hi, Adam. It's a really hey. pleasure to have you here today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so you're at your home office? I am. Uh, yeah, my daughter's in the back. Just put her down and I uh, snuck away for a second. Let's see if, uh, see if she gives me a little bit of time today. How old's your daughter? Uh, she is five weeks. So oh, uh, it's, it's fresh. It's, 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 oh, she's still got that new car smell on her. <laughs> uh, we still uh, we're still working out all the kinks. Yeah, I don't have all the kinks worked out yet. So, uh, uh, but uh, I think we should be. I think we should be okay for an hour. Well, that's fantastic. What happens to you when you see a baby girl come into your life? Oh man, it's 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 something that changes you. That even if somebody tells you how it's going to change you, you can't really fathom it. You can't really understand um, what unconditional love is. I told my wife that the other day. You know, I thought I loved unconditionally until I had her. And I realized that all the love I gave before was actually conditional. Even with my own mom, before I said I loved you, you did something to me. You gave me food. You let me play. I mean, there was there was things that happened before I audibly knew and understood what love was and said it. This is the first experience that I've had with something that I feel was unconditional because she has not done anything but terrorize us for five weeks and yet i still love her and i, I and you know it, it, it's crazy to say but i feel like when people say they love unconditionally even with my wife before i said i loved you we went on dates we, we went to the movies we hung out we enjoyed each other's company we were friends for six months so before i said i loved you there were things that you did and there are things that I did and there are experiences that, that I had. So is it truly unconditional? No, it was conditioned. It was, it was, it was, yes, if you do this, I love you and you're a nice person, you know, and with her, she has done nothing but terrorize and I still love her. And uh, so it's really taught me, you know, people might think that's crazy for me to say that, but I feel that's, I feel that's the truth. I feel that what we can, what we classify as unconditional is not unconditional. There's a condition to that. Boy, that is so real. I mean, uh, to think about it in this way, that is just so from the heart. That's wonderful. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, you you have some real deep thoughts at two o'clock in the morning when you're holding her and she's not sleeping. And you're like, girl, you gonna go to sleep ever? Like today, please, daddy, <laughs> tomorrow. Like, you know, so uh, you start thinking about a lot of stuff at, at two in the morning. You start second guessing everything. Well, let's talk about your, uh, the young Adam. You were born in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, you went to school at the University of Florida. What interesting things happened in between oh, that birth and, uh, and you going to college? A lot, man. Being born in Trinidad gives you a different perspective. Uh, that hunger that you get from being an immigrant and coming to this country and my mom sacrificing everything to bring us here. She had nothing. She came here and uh, and got a temp job that she ended up being able to continue. Um, and knowing that we had a house and we had a, she had a career in Trinidad, and she said, 
but I wouldn't be able to afford to send you to college if I stayed in Trinidad. So I need to come here and hopefully get U.S. citizenship so you can get in-state tuition and not pay international fees for you to survive and for me to thrive. And having that chip on my shoulder uh, for the last 34 years really pushes you. And it's something that other situations can't push you like that when you like my mom gave everything up and came and we 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 stayed in one room together with a family friend that let us come and stay until we can figure out what we can do um you know it, it, it's 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 something that you you can't understand and fathom until you have that chip on your shoulder and you say i got to prove myself every day and i wake up to push and grind and people say well adam you've done so much and i guess we'll talk about some things i've done and they say, I say, yeah, but my mom is still working. So if my mom is still working, I have done nothing in my head. You know what I mean? Until I can say, mom, you don't have to go down I-95 and go to work anymore. I have, to me, I have literally done nothing because you know, she still has to do that. And if she sacrificed everything for me and I'm not able to give anything to her, then it was a very selfish life. And I and, and that's not where I'm at. So um, every time I feel like I've accomplished something, I've gotten some award or whatever, whatever. At the end of the day, in the back of my mind, I say my mom is still working. So get back to work, Adam. You know, let's let, let, let's get to work. There's so many types of love and support that people experience on their path. And the way that that friend gave you guys that room and the way that your mom did for you what she did, I think you now see it as a parent, right? Mm -hmm. She'll work because she needs to, because she wants to, because it fulfills her. But as a child of somebody who supported you that way, you, you feel like there's a never-ending journey to support her. And uh, she's just got to be proud as can be of what you've done with the opportunities that she helped create. Uh, yeah, she de she definitely she definitely is. Um, but she, she she reminds me pretty regularly. I'm still working there, so uh, she, I like all that. But uh, I'm still working. I'm still going on I-95. So let me know why right. I can do that. Um, all right. And it, 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 I think I appreciate her even more these past five weeks because I understand it now. Even before I was thirty and I had these businesses and I had a wife and I had all that stuff. I didn't get it. I tried to get it. And now on the other side, I'm like, oh, this is what you did for me. This is how you felt. This is why you said I will do and I will pick up and I will go and I will travel. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I get it. And until then, I try to understand, you know, and I tell I tell people and I tell businesses and companies and everything that unless you're in those people's shoes, it is hard to understand. You can have a focus meeting and you can have a roundtable discussion and you can have all these industry people. But the second you leave out of patient care, you may have a two year window of really getting it. After that, you don't get it. You don't have original thought. You don't have new ideas because you, you gain that from being in the grind, in the hustle is where those original ideas and all the best about people come when their back is against the wall. When your back isn't against the wall, it is hard to push through. It is very difficult to get to that next level that you have to get with any idea or any company is you need a little bit of grit. You need a little bit of hustle. You need a little bit of, oh, they don't believe in me. They think I don't got it. They think I lost it. 
you know they think my last idea was my best idea you know talking to you here they 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 think oh i've already done the best of what i have to offer to this world but if you have that little chip if you don't have no chip you got to have somebody telling you you're not good it's it's no it's no way that's the only thing that makes you wait that's got to be something to push you through is that little chip and i got a million and one chips i mean i got chips all over my shoulder you know every time i'm like you know they say um, michael jordan used to make up grudges against people make up slights so he would tell people or make stuff up in the news that so and so said this about him just to amp him up for the game and after the game is over they'll be like they'll ask him questions like oh yeah that never happened i just you i just needed a little motivation that week and I was like, Michael, Michael just making stuff up. He's like, yeah, just making stuff up, you know. And uh, that's that's kind of, you know, I don't have to make anything up. Right now, I still got the chips on my shoulder. Uh, but if I lose them, I'm gonna, I'll just start making. I'll just say, I'll just say, you told, you said something about me, and uh, it'll help me. It'll help me. He's gonna be like, oh, that was the worst interview you ever did. And I'd be like, oh, that's what you think? I, I, okay, okay, let's go. Well, your drive is evident, and you went through a number of different clinical experiences, and then you established this practice down in Palm Beach Gardens called Social Light Vision, and you must be proud of it. But what I saw, what was interesting on your website, is you have these giving back programs. What's that about, and what's the impact of them? Uh, I've been blessed to be a blessing. I mean, I didn't get here on my own, um, and I have a lot of instances in which uh, people have given to me and supported me. You know, I, I, was, I was the kid that was in the Big Brother, Big Sister program. I was in the Boys and Girls Club. I was in the Urban League. I was in, you know, Urban Youth Impact. I was in all the different, you know, things that are out there. Uh, my mom dropped me off every Saturday, every day after school. Um, so because of that, uh, I feel an obligation to give back to, to a kid that looks just like me. And I, I always want to let them know when I, I give every opportunity that I can to go speak and let them understand that I was them. They are me. And sometimes even when I talk to the students, they look at me as an alien and they say, yeah, I know we look alike, but we're not the same. You didn't been, you haven't been through what I've gone through. And I said, man, if I had enough time to tell you all that I have been through in my life, you would shut up pretty quickly. Um, and uh, I, I try to give every opportunity to get them to see because, you know, I never saw a black optometrist till I became one. And so that I didn't use that as my stepping stone to say, well, I want to be that because I saw myself in that. No, I saw success and I wanted to emulate success and success doesn't have any color, but green. So I, I said, I wanted that as what I emulated and I went after it. And then when I went to optometry school, like on the first week I saw a black optometrist, and it didn't hit me that I never saw it. I didn't realize it until that moment when I saw somebody look like me walking in the campus on, in Memphis. And uh, it's uh, Dr. Norton uh, is his name. And he was just sitting there in the clinic with his white coat on and I walked right by him and I had to take a double take. And I was like, and he just does the clinic and then he has a private practice. So he's only in the office like one day a week or something like that. So I just like walked right by him and I was like, Hey, my name is Adam. And I just, you know, just talk with him for a second. And then after I walked away, I was like, that was the first time I saw somebody look like me. But I didn't even realize that because when I picked this profession, I didn't pick it because, you know, somebody directly said, hey, you should be an optometrist. Da, da, da. I never had that handout experience. I never had that hand up experience. I never had 
even though I've worn glasses since I was four, none of the optometrists that I've ever seen, and I've seen quite a few, have ever said, have you thought about optometry? I was just a guy that they, that they sold glasses to. I was that kid. I was not, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't get that. I didn't have that experience. So I try to go and tell the students that you can you can do it. And then in my office, I have what's called the Beyond 2020 program, in which we give glasses away to, to kids in need. Um, and the only thing I, I require is I want them to send me their, their resume, transcript, headshot. And I want to see what kind of impact does me, you know, giving and doing in their life have on their life. I want to see that there, there, there makes a change. Can I, can, I, can I be that person that steps in and that allows them to see the board when they couldn't see the board and sit down and give them and have that one little talk with them that hopefully uh, is the change in their life. Um, and if I can impact and reach a few, um, then I feel like I've, I've done something to deserve the blessings that I've gotten in my life. Uh, that, that's an awesome program. You do a lot of education, not of just these children, but of our colleagues in optometry. You have a pretty deep online presence. Um, you have patient education videos on your website. Um, you're out recording things. I'm curious about the positives that you see out of that. Um, are you getting good feedback because you've developed some good content? And uh, we're going to get into a little bit more about some of the collaborations you've had, but some of the things you're doing, even just for patient education, is it being well-received? Yeah, you actually you actually, you actually did some research. Look at this man doing some research on uh, on his guests here, man. It's, most of the people I'm on, they, 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 uh, they don't do any research. All right, good. Um, yeah, it's been wonderfully received. I mean, because not everybody is going to go into an optometrist's office. Some people uh, are, are not going to go unless they can understand. And also sometimes, the, let's not act as if the exam that, that these patients are given is the same all over. So when we push and promote eye care and say, go get your eyes checked, when they've had a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am experience, it doesn't, they don't walk away with the same knowledge and education be, beyond what did, what did the doctor check? What did they look for? Do I have cataracts? Do I not? Uh, you know, do I have glaucoma? You know, I told him I had a family history, but you never mentioned anything afterwards. So um, when I educate the public, it's because some of them are not my patients and I want them to get an understanding and walk away with something. And then when they are more educated and they can go into that doctor's office and ask a question and say, hey, what about this? Do I have this? And then that comes from the knowledge. So patients love um, and I've gotten great feedback from the content that I've done. Uh, just to give them the little small nuggets so they feel more educated, they feel more confident about their eyes, and they can get the connection between eyes and health. Um, and sometimes we try to segment and separate it out, and uh, patients don't understand the uh, need and the requirement for getting your eyes checked and taking care, taking care of your eyes and how it connects to the whole body. Um, and that's, that's great for, for patient care. What I've uh, then loved to transfer was now, how do I talk to my 10-year-old, 10-year-ago self new optometrist just graduated and what would I wish I was taught or I knew 10 years ago. Um, and that's been my focus is focusing on new grads um, and focusing on residents and students um, and people, you know, now coming in uh, to this profession and saying, okay, I don't know everything and I never profess to, to know everything, but what I do know, I don't mind imparting in you. Um, and if I can give you one little nugget that makes your day a week better, as an optometrist and gives you a little peace of mind to sleep and be like, it's okay. Like you, you, you'll be fine. You'll get through it. It's going to be a tough, tough day, tough week. Um, but you're going to get through it 
And if that impacts one uh, one doctor, then I've then I've done my job, and I feel like um, I feel like I've given something back. I've always I'll, that same chip I have on my shoulder for me to do better. I have that same chip on what have I done for somebody else, um, and I try to do as much and give as much because I've I've been given so many opportunities, and I have um, worked really hard. But I've also been blessed, and uh, God has given me so much favor in my life. Uh, that uh, he, he, if he does, if he has not, if he doesn't do anything else for me after this, he's done enough because uh, I, I, I am, I, I've been blessed in my small career to do, to do so much. Well, and you should keep doing that and spreading. And, and back to the issue of making these videos. I mean, this is some good quality stuff. Um, do you do this by yourself? Do you set up an iPhone and a stand or you have help for an optometrist who might want to do this? And I suggest they look at Social Light Vision's website because it's good. Uh, what, what is the production like? So some of the videos is I have a, a, a stand and I have the ring light and I can record on that. Um, and then some of the videos, what I do is that I, I block off one day of patient care and I'll record 10 videos with somebody else recording it um, and do it all at one time. So it depends on the quality of the video. If you see stuff sliding in and out, I recorded that one day and I'll record a whole bunch of content and I'll change the tie, I'll change my shirt to make it look like different days. But that is recording one day. It's much more cost effective to, to hire a photographer or a camera person to record a whole bunch at one time than it is to record once one day and record another one another day. So um, uh, I, I would suggest anybody that's looking to do this, you can do the small ones just on your phone with a camera, a ring light, um, and stuff like that. And if you want the edited high quality, I would set up the stuff in advance, write out the content, write out what you're going to say, figure out your props, figure out your intros, and then just pay somebody to come in and record it all in one day and then they can edit it and then you can just put it out slowly um which makes it more cost effective um and you can you, you can do that much much easier you know what i take away from your effort to educate and spread information is especially on the patient information side is we always talk about the importance of patient education after the visit but this idea of preceding knowledge no different than you going and talking to the kids about whether they might want to you know be an optometrist someday you're telling the patient Think about glaucoma, think about dry eye, think about the way that systemic diseases might affect your eyes. And it changes their ability to be a good consumer of the service you give. And that is really important. Yeah, I feel like if I can walk away and the patient says, I felt educated, I felt heard, um, you know, because sometimes they can walk in and they have a question. And sometimes you, some doctors can go in there and just do their thing, like think they're just coming in for glasses. And then, you know, the patient walks out and he's like, hold on, but I came because my eyes were itching. You know, and did you ask to say, well, what brought you in today? And they give you a random, a, a random question. And until you solve that, you've done nothing. You can walk away and be like, oh, I got on the 2015. I think I did something. And they didn't come in for that. They came in because their dad got diagnosed with glaucoma last week. And then they're scared for their own self. But you never asked. You thought glasses, contacts out the door. And you didn't ask enough questions. And I feel like the patients that come to my office, I want them to, one, be educated. I want them to, to be the most educated patients uh, in Palm Beach County. And they walk around understanding, do I have glaucoma? Do I have cataracts? Are my eyes dry? Um, I try to hit the, the, the high points and say, okay, this is where you are on these scales. Um, and let them understand how your diabetes is affecting your eye. And then when they leave, they know what the machines did. 
Because you can you can put a patient through 12 machines in your office and they have no idea. It was a light flashing in their eye. It was 12 lights in their eyes. They don't know, but they should know this one. This one gives you a general idea of your prescription. This is the one testing your peripheral vision. This is an MRI machine. This is a camera. This is texting your dark adaptation. This is, you know, like, and then, oh, okay. So when they walk out, oh, they test everything because I had a patient uh, that I saw for two years in a row. Great patient, bought glasses, thought we had a great rapport. Then I didn't see her for a year. I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, you know, you know, people get busy. I get busy. And then like uh, about another year goes by and all of a sudden she walks into the optical and I'm in the optical helping the patient with some glasses. And she says, Dr. Rance, can I talk to you? And I said, sure, sure. What can I talk to you? She said, I cheated on you. I said, what you mean you cheated on me? She says, um, I, I was just, I was in the mall and I just went to the place that was there um, and he did an exam on me, but I don't know what they did, but that wasn't an exam. They said, I, he didn't tell me anything. I don't know anything. They didn't, you know, do the things that you do over here. She's like, I, I don't feel, I can't sleep, Dr. Ramsey. She's like, I, I don't know if they really checked my eyes. Do I have, did the glaucoma develop this year? I don't know because they didn't tell me. He said, like, I can't, I can't. She's like, I need you to do it over. And I said, well, Mrs. Smith, you, and I'm just making a name up. Mrs. Smith, you're, uh, you ready to use your insurance. So you have to wait, you know, 12 months to use your insurance. She said, I'll pay. She said, no, 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 no. I'll pay, I'll pay out of pocket because I need to, I need the exam that you did last. I need you to do that again and tell me where I am at. And I go do the exam and I say, you're fine. She's like, oh, thank you. I, I, I really appreciate it. I'm going to be able to see. And that's because you fully educated them so that even when they go somewhere else, they can tell the difference between your exam and theirs because a lot of optometrists get so scared about online and get scared about commercial and scared about this company and that company. BMW not concerned about Kia. And you can have as many Kia dealerships that pop up on every single corner. And BMW and Mercedes don't be like, oh my God, Kia's opening up another branch next to me because they know who they are and they know the business that they're running and they know the land that they're in. And their consumer knows the difference. And if the consumer cannot tell the difference between your exam and your office and the office down the street and every other office that opens up, is it that office's fault or is it your fault? And to me, it is your fault because you have not educated them to the point that they can tell the difference. So when somebody says two for 69 and free eye exams and they think that's equivalent to the exam that you provided, then to me, they should go for the free one. If it's the same quality, you know what? Don't pay for yours. Go to the free one. But if there's a difference, I shouldn't be concerned. They're like, oh, what do you think about online? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? They, they, listen, I buy stuff online. I buy Amazon all the time. So if the if if the if Macy's cannot sell it to me differently than I can buy on Amazon, why should I buy it inside of Macy's? It is more convenient to buy it on Amazon. But the experience I get when I shop for my hats and my fedoras. I don't like buying those online. I like to touch and feel. I like the person that says, hey, man, this is made out of this kind of wool, and we got this new thing in, and they have this blah, 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 blah. Then all of a sudden, those are experiences. I like to have an experience when I buy these hats, when I do different things. I like to have an experience, and I, you can't buy the experience online. And I think a lot of offices are skipping the experience and trying to make it equivalent and trying to say, oh, can we do the same thing as Amazon? I don't want to do what Amazon is doing. That that's not a that's not a that's a losing proposition. I want to do the socialized vision, the Dr. Adam Ramsey version of this that you can't get somewhere else. And if you can't get it somewhere else, I shouldn't. I don't have to be concerned 
about what this one is doing, what that one is doing, because you can't buy me down the street. Yeah, you know exactly. Well, let's shift gears to another topic of passion and something that I think is obligatory for sandbox stories to talk about. Let me start with a web a set of data off of your website. Three point two percent of optometry school students identify as African American. One point eight percent of ODs identify as African American, and three point eight percent of college faculty identify as African American. But our population is 13% Black and African-American. You and Dr. Daryl Glover co-founded this site and this service called Black Eye Care Perspective. And I think we need to talk about its mission and what your goals are. And I want to be here to understand what it is you want the profession to understand so we can make a difference in those numbers. Yeah, uh, thanks for asking about that. Daryl and I were, you know, we, we've been connected for a little while now, and we'll go to conferences. And I remember one day it was one of the Vision Expos. I think it was Vision Expo West. I go to both of them, so I kind of get them mixed. And we're sitting there, and it's like the last day of Expo. And I'm sitting there with Daryl, and we're just sitting on the conference floor. And I look around, and I said, Daryl, I only see me and you. I've never, I don't, like the whole time we were there, I didn't see another black optometrist the whole three days that we were there. And I said, I feel like that's how eye care treats black people as the small percentage. So they're treating us like the 3% and not realizing that we actually are the 13.8%. And that's who they need to, to reach. And that's who they need to make sure that they're connecting with. Because a lot of the vendors go at it based on what they see. And they're seeing the doctors, right? So all the vendors, all the sales reps, all the CEOs, who do they connect with? The doctors. Well, the doctors are the 3%. And at the conferences, it's probably the big conferences. It's less than that, that come to those big conferences. A lot of the black docs either go to uh, either black the black conferences or they do it locally. So you don't see them at a, a, a big conference. So when they're doing their advertising, when they're doing their marketing, when they're doing their budgeting, when they are looking to bring on speakers, they don't see anybody. So I said, you know what? That's got to change. We got to get them to see that we are bigger than the 3%. We are the 13%. And if we were 13% of what they thought about, 13% of the marketing budget, 13% of the advertising, 13% of the boards and the speakers, then they would understand the power and the the, the consumers that are that are, are African American, how those people need to be reached. And I we, we me and Dare looked at each other and I said, Well, I can't get mad at the eye care industry for not hiring black consultants if there aren't any black consultants. I look around and I know a lot of the people, they ain't no black consultants. So I said, I can't get mad at them. So let's let's do it. Let's go for it. We got something to say. We got we I I, I got a different perspective. It's not, it may not be your perspective, it may not be that opinion, but I think my opinion is valuable and I think I can add something of value to the industry. So let's let's go for it. Um and we created Black Eye Care Perspective to just say, listen, you th- this voice needs to be heard. Um, and we need to make impact. So that's what we did. And that's what we're doing. Um, and we're not just here about making noise. And uh, we're here to do something about it. So we did a, a, an event called Impact HBCU, which was led by Dr. Essence Johnson. Um, and She's uh, a great speaker. I just yeah. interject. She's a great speaker. Great video on your website. She's better than me at that stuff. She's really good. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had over 300 people register and over 2,000 people view the event live. Um, and we really went to uh, get to the students and say, hey, 
because a lot of times the students are not exposed to eye care. You know, think about they, if they can see well, sometimes the parents aren't taking them to the eye doctor because that's a cost that is not needed. If they don't have health insurance, why would I go take my kids to the eye doctor when they could, they could see across the room and they could throw a football 100 yards? then their eyes are fine to them, right? To that consumer. Mm -hmm. So they've not been exposed to that profession. So when it's time to pick what career you, you want to choose, well, I've been to the dentist. You know, I've got medication from the pharmacy. I've been to my primary care doctor. So a lot of times those are the ones they've been exposed to. So that's the ones they're going to. So I said, well, we need to get the students exposed to eye care, exposed to optometry. And, you know, we need to go where they are. And a lot of the schools, to be honest, they, they go to the predominantly white institutions and they don't go to the historically black colleges. And 60 to 70 percent of all graduates come out of HBCU schools. So if you never go to where the black students are, but yet you complain to say that I never get any black applicants. Well, you go to an all white college or majority white room and then you bring in those students. You have to go to the rooms where the black people are. It's not their fault. They're going to the schools that accept them. So if you never go to an HBCU school to recruit, and then you say, well, we don't have any black applicants. You never went, you know? So we said, you know what? We're going to go. It's okay. Y'all don't got time to go. We're going to go. And um, we were able to, to go and impact the students. And we we're, we have some great uh, some great numbers on uh, increasing enrollment this year. So we're we're excited to see the amount of students that are getting into the profession and we're helping them along the way with their OAT. We're getting them headshots and bios and resumes made so that they are more prepared for their interviews. Um, and uh, we're getting them interview opportunities um, and shadowing opportunities with local doctors that we know um, so that their package to apply to these schools looks better because some of these students have, didn't have a, a mom or dad or uncle that was an optometrist. They, I mean, people don't realize how much, how, how high percentage of optometrists in the profession had somebody else, somebody close to them that was able to give them a direct impact. They're like, oh yeah, it was my uncle. But it still was your uncle. Like you got to understand some people did not have that. And some people don't get it. And I was like, yeah, you had that to, to lie on, to rely on, to see, you know? Um, so we're, we're, we're helping them get that. Um, and it's been uh, really rewarding. Um, and we're excited for the, what, what the future has. We got some big, we got some big things. Uh, if, if you think that was big, we got something even bigger uh, planned for 2021. COVID messed up some of our plans, but uh, we're, we're, we're shaking up eye care. And I, I, I like shaking it up. It needs to be shaken up. I love that. And uh, I've been fortunate at the Illinois College of Optometry to be part of a effort to drive diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, under the direction of Canadian optometrist, Dr. Nana Owusu, who is really driven on the same topic. I understand you guys have chatted a good bit in the past. And Nana is really expecting the college to reach out to historically Black colleges and universities through a process that is much more methodical and for you to lay the underpinnings for that. And I think the colleges should work with Black Eye Care perspective on that is to bring those applicants that make optometry 
the 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 look and the feel that the public has and it's the right thing to do i I heard a story and this is very loose i don't know how true it is that even schools like wayne state university in detroit are thinking about optometric education programs they've got a med school and they want to serve their public and they want to serve it with the students that are at their school right and and so um i just applaud the two of you for doing that and and to keep this 13 percent uh challenge up front and center in the profession, if there's anything that Sandbox Stories and Scott Jens can do to help, I want to do that. So uh, just keep pushing, my friends. I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Now, I got it on I got it on tape today. So uh, I, I, I got it on. Yeah, don't, don't try to click off now. We got it on tape, dude. We're, uh, we're, we're coming. We're, we, we, I would definitely uh, reach out to you for that. Um, yeah, I, I, I would have thought more schools would have reached out to us, to be honest. I'm going to be very honest. Because we're making their job easier. We're going to places that they should be going, doing other people's jobs. And, you know, they should be reaching out. Like, what can we do to help? We got a few, um, a few people reaching out. But a lot of schools, a lot of people, they, well, we have our own thing. And who are these guys to tell us what to do? And we're, we just want to fill our 100 seats. We don't care about who is in the seat. We just want to fill our 100 seats. And I think that is the issue. You should care who's in the seat. It's not only a, a, a race of OAT test scores and GPAs. And a lot of them pat themselves on the back on, we have the highest GPA we've ever had. And we have the highest average OAT that we've ever accepted. But yet you're the least diverse you've ever been. And you have done nothing to change or benefit the profession. Somebody who has a 300 or 340 OAT and a 4.2 GPA, okay, that's great. But what about that doctor that's gonna go back to their community and impact the health and lives of people that don't have access to healthcare and don't and, and maybe only go to the eye doctor because they saw somebody that looks like them. The amount of stories that I have of patients coming in and saying, I only came because I wanted to get, get you to check my eyes. I wanted to get somebody that looked like me to look there because I've had bad experiences at, at, at doctors. And I found glaucoma and found other things in their eyes that we've been able to help because I was in the community and able to be there. So what would be more impactful to this profession to get another 340, 4.2 GPA student in that seat or to get a black, brown, Indian, Asian optometrist to come in and go back into those communities and make a difference in the, in the lives of the people we serve? What's the most important thing? And I think the schools really have it backwards. All To me, they focus so much on just putting their chest out our students passed the 100% of a part one and 100% of a part two and OAT and GPA and look at us and wow, we did this and we got these residents. But what difference have you made in the community? What difference have you made in the lives of oh, there? That should be the focus of the schools. And they, they say, where is the change? What have you done? You've been in that community for 100 years and you've been pumping out 100 optometrists every single year. But what difference has that made? Do you have stories of, of, of that changing lives? And that's what's missing. There needs to be another thing that's important. And they need to put another thing that says, how diverse was your class? What effort did you make? Because years ago, optometry was 90% men and 10% women. And they looked around and they said, you know what? This is wrong. We should have more women in this profession. If there's 50% women out there, then there should be 50% women in, in eye care. And they had a marketing plan and a marketing budget. They had a specific goal to try and get more women engaged into eye care. So they said, you know what? We're the work-life balance profession. 
and they had a they, they went out and they said we're work-life balance come on you could be a mom and do eye care you can work and make six figures and be off in time to take care of your kids after school and it's not too stressful on your body and you know what women said you know what that's that sounds pretty good i get to work i get to make some money for my profession and i get to go back and now we have 70 percent of the, the graduating class are women but where is the mantra to say African-Americans and minorities need to come into this profession? Where is the marketing plan? Where is the actual goals? And who? why do we have to come in and, and set the 13% promise and say, hey, guys, you guys are here. This is here. What is the plan to get in between? And what they say is, well, we, we're, we're trying to increase underrepresented minorities. And I say, hold on. In this profession, Asians have, and since 2007 to 2019, Asians went from 24% to 30% in that amount of time. Hispanics went from 5% to 10%. African-Americans went from 3% to 3%. So if your goal is saying that we have a lot of minorities in our profession and we've increased the minority representation, you will actually be right. There are more minorities in this profession. So if your goal and if you are judging it and doing the stat numbers on minorities, there are going to be less men, less white men, and more minorities in the profession for the last 10 years. So you may pat yourself on the back. But I said, hold on, hold on. I went on the ASCA website. It took me about an hour. I found the numbers. I went through the numbers. And I said, yeah, but what about this? I'm right here, the 3%. When, when, when did that number change? And I went looking, and all the programs to help minorities stopped in um, uh, 2015. So all the, the, the grants dried up in 2015, 2016 that J&J gave, and they, it, it, it stopped. So I said, so you guys didn't move the needle in 10 years for African-Americans. The grants finished that were given in 2016, and no new grants were issued, and no new plan was come up with. So I said, hold on, what, what, what is this part here? There's a, there's, a, there's a distinct gap here that's missing, and who cares about this? Where is the people that, that are fighting and championing for, for this part and, and raising their hand and saying, this is unacceptable. There's, this, is, this is really unacceptable. Um, and we're here and we're helping with the plan. We're not just making noise and criticizing other people. We're raising our hand and saying that we're going to do the work. And I got 200 optometrists, uh, black optometrists with me. And uh, we're trying to get more. And we're trying to get non-black people with us as well, which we do have. Um, and we're saying, hey, we're willing to go in the communities and we're going to do what needs to be done. And we're going to help you guys with the 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 game plan and the, and the blueprint to do it because it can be done. Um, you just need to have black people at the table because you, it's, you can't have a plan for black people without black people. You can't I can't decide on what is good for women without women. You know, what I mean, I have to ask them. And that is that's what's missing is that they, 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 they're not asking us. And we're raising our hand and say, if you ask, we'll, we'll let you know. And you have the commitment of people like me and others to keep pressing on the optometric institutions to make sure we follow through on this challenge. So just a job really well done. I'm just thrilled in my career that I've had black optometrists that have served as my colleagues and mentors, people like Dr. Mel Ship from Ohio State University and Dr. Derek Artis, who has been along on so many rides with me. And I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that you and Daryl and the team are pressing it forward. So thanks for that summary and your impassioned plea to make a change. Now, now, a couple things as we get toward the end. You've written a book, Play Chess, Not Checkers. Um, it's this idea about a warm startup and pushing students and new professionals to create their own practice. 
are there any special secrets or is it back to your adage of hard work gets it done? Uh, definitely, definitely hard work, but you have to have a game plan. Um, you, you have to, you have to have a strategy, uh, you know, teaching doctors how to open a practice successfully and warm, not cold, um, doesn't just happen. Uh, the, the days of hanging a shingle outside and, uh, and, and all of a sudden people just show up. That's not going to work. You have to have a strategy. Um, like, like I, I mentioned between the Mercedes and the Kia, you have to have some strategy. You have to have, you have to know that part. So, you know, I, I, I read all the books that were that were on the market as far as I care in business, and I've read them at least twice, and they're on my shelf. And some of them I've had the pleasure of getting autographed and talking to the authors. And uh, none, most of them were talking about growing their business because most of the doctors that wrote that book wrote it at the end of their career. So it's too far away from when they first started to really write about that content because it's hard to feel that feeling of just starting 30, 40 years later. What you can understand is how to grow something because that's what you've done most recently. So a lot of the content that, that's out there is talking about how to think differently, expand your mind and grow your practice and staff training because that's what they're doing when they're writing the book. Right. Um, so I said, you know what? There needs to be a nuts to bolts uh, blueprint for how to do it from scratch, because there's a lot of doctors that would like to grow their practice, but they don't have a practice. And they're working in a commercial setting or they're just graduating from optometry school and they want to go open. And they say, yeah, that's great. But what's step one? Because you're telling me step 10, but I need help on step one. And there wasn't a book that helped them on step one. And I said, you know what? Let me write step one through nine. And at the end of the book, I say, but go read those other four books because I read them and they added value to me. But here is step one. And if I can help you get from step one to step nine, and I can pass the baton to somebody else to help you do something further than I am in my career, then I've done my job. And I felt like, you know what, let me write my part, even when in my imperfection, you know, because I write the book and I say, I'm not perfect. My office isn't perfect. I don't have it all figured out. I certainly do not, but I strive every day to get better. I have office meetings once a week with my staff and still go over numbers and things and say, hey, we need to do better here. We need to do better there. But I know more than I did 10 years ago. And I can tell my 10 year ago self what to do. And I can I can help that person because I know I know more than them. So I say, you know what? Let me go and write the book from my imperfection and share that because 10 years later, I may not be able to be as introspective about what it feels like to open on day one. Because after you got a million dollars and you got grandkids, it's hard to understand what 20, the 25 and 28 and 29 year olds have to go through. It's too far away. You know what I mean? So um, I, I, I'm really, uh, you know, I wrote the book trying to help that because the play on, you know, and people have heard that play chess and checkers analogy in other professions. I don't know if it's been used as much and I care, but you know, Big business is making some big jumps and big leaps on that same board that small businesses are trying to work within. And if you do not have a, a strategy and a game plan of how to succeed on that chessboard, um, you're going to be in trouble. Um, and you have to have a game plan. So that's my uh, play chess uh, analogy there. And it was trying to wrap uh, people's minds around the concept and uh, get them to see that uh, you got to be strategic in I care, even in your small little, you know, uh, your small little office. You still need to be strategic in that office. 
And of all the things you've done, we've talked about, you're also a frame designer as part of ethnicity eyewear. How'd you man, get into that? Man, it's uh, it's a crazy story, man. My life, like I tell you, my life has been blessed. I told you that from day one. Um, some things just show up, you know. I got a call, and um, this guy named Chris was trying to uh, to start an, an eyewear an eyewear company. I mean, he already had an eyewear company, Sayo Eyewear, um, and it was uh, Asian fit um and uh american fit uh frame framewear and he was trying to do uh african-american uh fit eyewear because he walked around the vision expo and he said but they're designing for everybody else but black people and i said yeah and um the one of my friends uh daniel feldman uh from uh the optical journal said hey but you need to talk to my guy uh adam ramsey and he could help you uh you know figure out what's going on with that and uh, Chris gave me a call and flew from Japan over to my office in uh, Florida and wanted to sit down and talk with me and said, I want to I want to do frames design for African-Americans. I want to know, would you help? Um, and me and him had some real serious, blunt conversations and uh, we came up with some stuff. So I'm wearing the Malcolm right now um, and uh, it really uh, fits really well for the bridge. It doesn't cut in on the temples. Um, and I was trying to give you a textured uh, acetate here, just trying to give a little bit of design and flair. But um, as you can see, I've been on this, this video thing the whole time. It doesn't slide down my face without nose pads. And that's really important for African-Americans is that you'll see a lot of black people always pushing their frames up because it doesn't fit well on their bridge and it's sliding down their face a lot. Um, and that's just bridge design is not good. And the temple length is not enough. So a lot of times African-Americans are... Uh, their temples are have to be extended uh, because it, they're not long enough. A lot of if you go most most frames are 140 millimeters in the temple links, and it's just not long enough. So when you extend the temples and they have no nose pads, what's going to happen? It's going to slide right down their face because there's nothing to grip. So and a lot of African Americans, the thing is like you know it's coming down, it's sliding because it's always they're always doing that. Um, so we came together with some simple strategies and uh, try to get some cool unique concepts. Um, and, um, we came out with, uh, a, a frame line and I'm one, one other stylist. Um, and, uh, he's, he, he's, it's, it's been doing well. We were supposed to launch it, um, in, uh, at Vision Expo and, uh, you know, Vision Expo didn't happen. So then we had to just launch it virtually. Um, but it's still been selling and still been doing well. Um, and I'm, a, I, and I'm excited to take this, this ride and journey to say, I can say I'm a frame designer now. It's, it's, it's crazy. As I say, I've been totally blessed uh, in my life, uh, and uh, I'm excited to, to, to share. And if I can get something where it helps people, being able to wear a frame that actually fits your face, maybe you wear the glasses more often, you know, because it fits you properly. Um, and uh, if I can do it, somebody else can do it. And uh, I, I, I hope to inspire some, some more frame designers to get out there to, to talk to the, the companies and say, hey, Luxottica, hey, Marshawn. How many black frame designers do you guys have? You're designing frames for that 13%, but how many times are you getting black people to help you in that journey? And they would probably say not too many uh, when you go there. And I said, that's not right. You, if you, I want to see 13% of the frame designers be African-American because you're designing for 13% of the population. So we need to do some work. So everybody has work to do. You know what I mean? Like when um, the George Floyd situation happened, uh, Everybody was looking out and there was police brutality and there was all this other stuff happening. And I, me and, me and Daryl and, and a couple of people looked around and said, hold on, but I care is acting as if we have no problems here. 
They said, no, 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 we need to get we need to get the the, the, the conversation pointed over here and say, listen, that's not our issue. Police brutality is not a, 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 a eye care issue, but there are issues in eye care that need to be addressed and things that are being overlooked. Um, and uh, my goal is to is to, to bring the conversation and bring the light there. And I'm loving the, the frame design. I'm excited to, to to launch new models and to bring new things uh, to uh, to the public and get people to wear it. Um, I had a couple people buy like four frames. I had one person come in and buy four frames, and she said they're the best fitting frames. And it's and and we've had people that buy the frames that they didn't even know it was for me, and people buy them all around the country. So it's been uh, it's been a blessing, and I'm I'm excited to do that journey. I'm excited to do a lot of things. I and I I want to be that old guy that sits on the rocking chair and is talking trash, saying, "Remember that time when I did that?" Like, and, and I'm gonna have a whole bunch of stories to tell, and I'll be able to talk trash. While I'm retired, uh, and and and, uh, and and I'm excited. I'm excited for that. Well, you know what? That little baby girl of yours has given us a complete chunk of time, and I'm really glad she let her dad do that. Um, I'll, I'll let you wrap up. What's the last bit of wisdom you'd like to share with our audience? Um, I would say, for every time you you've been blessed and you've received something in your life. Try and impart and, and impact somebody else. See how much you can give and give back. Um, and you'll be surprised on how on how much people receive and how well uh, that is felt to the community, to other doctors. Um, take a time out and say, you know what? I need to extend an olive branch. Because sometimes you may think like, oh, they don't need to hear anything from me. But no, pick up the phone, call, reach out. See that student that's, that, that's in your chair and, and, and really spend some time beyond just the glasses and the contacts with them and just say, hey, what, what are you doing in school? How's school doing for you? How, you know, what, what college you wanna go to? And spend that extra 30 seconds imparting in their lives. Um, and let's see how much better we can make this eye care profession than we received it. I think you, when, when you put down your, uh, when you put down your slit lamp and you put down your BIO for the last time, I, I, I would say your the profession should be better than when you got it. And if it's not, then we got work to do. Well, I appreciate all the work you've done. I really want to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for this wonderful conversation, Adam. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. As everyone knows, my goal with Sandbox Stories is to bring this really unique perspective. And I think this story, the stories that Adam have told, gives a critical perspective to the advancement of our profession. And I can't thank him enough for joining us. For the audience, I really appreciate you attending. And until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do.